Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Amir Engel, and I'm the chair of the German department at the Hebrew University. I'm also the visiting professor at the Humboldt University here in Berlin. And today I'm talking to Jakob Norberg on his 2022 book, The Brothers Grimm and the Making of German Nationalism. Jakob, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation. So perhaps we start um, by setting up and having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and what got you to work on this topic. Well, thank you. Well, I'm a professor of German at uh, Duke University, where I've been, uh, I think, now for 15 years. And uh, when I came to Duke from graduate school, I was mostly interested in 20th century political thought. And I had written articles on Hannah Arendt, Theodor Adorno, Georg Lukacs, Karl Schmidt. But my teaching field at Duke was much wider. I have taught courses on folk tales from Grimm's to Disney, uh, the Viking Age, because I read a little bit of Old Norse and I'm interested in that period. And at some point, I think my teaching and my research started fusing a little more. I was interested in the emergence of modern ideologies in the early 19th century. And since I was teaching on the Grimm's, I was interested in their connection to nationalism, which was uh, an ideology that appeared, I would say, around 1800 and still with us and uh, still important. I think uh, my experience is similar in that we I also worked in 20th century and at a certain time I realized this it starts at the 19th century. So tell us, who is uh, who, who are the Grimm brothers, actually? Let's set up the stage. Who are the Grimm brothers? What are they known for? And how are they usually treated in the literature? Oh, that's a great question. In some sense, they don't need an introduction. They're so famous. Uh, their names are, of course, connected to the folk tales that have been translated into numerous languages, well over 100, I'm sure. And they themselves have also been portrayed as action heroes in movies and so on. So in some sense, they don't need an introduction. But um, I think we can uh, present them as uh, two brothers born in the mid-1780s in an electorate, a smaller state in the Holy Roman Empire in Hessen. And uh, they, they lived there. They had a kind of regional attachment to that place. They studied law to enter into public administration, but then they became inspired by teachers and friends to turn their attention to folkloric materials, tales, legends, uh, also legal, legal materials, myths, and so on. And uh, so they cultivated this interest in the German past, very broadly defined. And under the influence of uh, French administration in their homeland uh, during the um, Napoleonic period, they started turning against that French rule as a kind of alien rule and cherished their own native culture as a, as a kind of community-based identity that should be cherished, respected, and also uh, understood as politically relevant. So the Germans or the Hessians in this case should be ruled by Hessians rather than the French. So I would describe them in this way. Scholars, folklorists, eventually grammarians, lexicographers, who always thought that there was a political dimension to their often very detailed even myopic scholarly work. 
Interesting. And but they became known mostly for just so we kind of set the the stage and know what we're all talking about. They're mostly known for this wonderful selection of story yeah. tales, of fairy okay. tales. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I should. We'll return to it in a few minutes. Yeah. So this is a collection of folk tales that they started quite when they were quite young in their 20s, I believe. And the first volume came out in 1812. They were not old at the time. And uh, at the beginning, it wasn't very famous, but they kept issuing more and more editions. They also kept working on the tales and made them smoother and longer and more uh, audience friendly. And eventually it became this incredibly famous folktale collection. I think the very final edition in their lifetime was in 1857 or so. So it went through many, many editions. And they added um, illustrations and they dropped the footnotes that they initially had added. And so it became this just incredibly dis read and known folktale collection, in some ways out-competing all the other folktale collections that also existed at the time, before and after. And their names have been uh, associated very tightly with this collection. They are understood as storytellers. And their Children's and Household Tales is a book that is just extremely known. And again, one of the most translated works, I think, in uh, literary history. Yeah. Tell me, um, what made you want to do this project in terms of the literature? I mean, how are they mostly dealt and the literature, why did you feel you need to write this book? I think there was uh, something of a gap. Um, there's obviously an enormous literature on nationalism, an enormous scholarly literature on nationalism. But a lot of people have pointed out that nationalism has no major or very few major theoretical proponents. Uh, there is, for socialism, there's obviously people like Engels and Marx, and for liberalism, there are people like John Stuart Mill, and conservatism, there are people like Edmund Burke, but there's really no comparable figure for nationalism. And some people often say that there is a kind of theoretical deficit in nationalism. There's just a lack of good theoretical works defending it, perhaps because it isn't quite defensible in the same way as liberalism, conservatism, socialism. So that is a kind of problem within nationalism. At the same time, you have these enormously famous, iconic storytellers, the Brothers Grimm, known to basically everyone. Uh, but they're understood as storytellers, as folklorists, uh, maybe in Germany as dictionary builders or, or something like that. And uh, they are also very prominent nationalists, but there wasn't really a book about it. So I felt like there could be a kind of case study in nationalist thinking that would focus on these extremely famous um, uh, folklorists. But I, so, so when I approached publishers with the idea, they, they usually said, well, we don't have a, a, an interest in, in a book on folklore or something. So they were immediately categorized as a non-political in some sense. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, uh, I don't think that there is uh, attention paid in kind of political theory to these figures that were instrumental for the nationalist movement, but of course not exact, didn't exactly publish pamphlets or theoretical tracts explaining their position in abstract terms uh, that is in a way that is uh, parallel to uh, tracts of liberalism or socialism. Right. So I felt so, the, yeah. I'm sorry, go on. 
No, it was just a real gap, and I wanted to to kind of close it by looking at them as nationalists. Yes, in a way, it is. I didn't think about it when I read the book, but in a way, it is a story about uh, nationalism as a project of storytelling, right? Yes, exactly. I think so. Too. I, I as as uh, as I said earlier, they didn't ever publish a tract on nationalism, trying to persuade people with uh, explicit, rationally structured arguments about the virtues of nationalism. But they did publish a lot of stories and legal antiquities and myths and legends, in some ways trying to establish a kind of undeniable fact of the nation and its history. And that is a different kind of argumentation. You could say an argumentation by means of uh, curation or something, and undeniably an emotional kind of appeal in that too. So or, or, a set of stories. Or, for, or folklore. I mean, nationalism as a folkloristic project, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So this leads us directly to the chapter, the first chapter of the book, which has a, a wonderful a title. It's called The Philologist King. And I thought it's I thought it's very clever. It's obviously, and, and you discuss it, a kind of a, a riff on the famous a, a philosopher's king by Plato. Tell us a little bit about the philosopher king and the difference between the philosopher king and the philologist king, and why do you think this this transition is so so important? Yeah, I should first say that uh, Grimm's themselves did not introduce the idea of a philologist king explicitly. It's a it's a phrase that I coined to, but I did it to dramatize what I think is a real shift, and that they embody for them in the age of nations and in the age of nationalism, it's not enough that a ruler or a leader is wise, has insight, is magnanimous, is virtuous, is strong. Something else needs to be added. There's another criterion, and that is the leader or ruler has to come from partic the particular ethnic group over which he or she rules. They have to be member of the people. Otherwise, there is a kind of alien rule, and that's not legitimate to these nationalists. And so you have to be a member of the people over which you rule. And ideally, you should also know something about that people. You should know its stories, its language, its customs, its traditions, its history. And so in a sense, you could say that what they wanted was a king who truly understood the people. And how do you come to understand the people? Well, you listen to philologists or you become one yourself. And so in a sense, I felt there was a kind of parallel or almost a polemical opposition to a philosopher king, a king who has begun to philosophize, who's understood the great virtues of justice. Uh, and here you have a philologist king who maybe doesn't grasp justice or something, but he is part of the people and he cherishes the people, he speaks their language and he appreciates their language. So that's what I meant by the philologist king. It is an anti-imperial project. I think so, because suddenly... So I'll give you an example. Uh, the Grimm brothers lived in Hessen, and they were ruled during a period uh, by a brother of Napoleon, uh, Jérôme uh, Napoleon, so a younger brother of Napoleon. And they had nothing against him personally. They said he tried his best, but... He wasn't German. He didn't speak German. He didn't try to learn German. And so it was an inappropriate ruler. And there should be a German ruler who has a more intimate relationship to this German people. So that, in that sense, it's an anti-imperialist project in that it's not enough to know things about justice. 
or even be a competent ruler, you have to come from the people itself. So this leads us to the Grimm brothers' most famous project, the famous Kindelhausmärchen, which I looked up uh, today. It's translated into English. I mean, by Wikipedia, it's just fairy tales, but they're actually called the Kindelhausmärchen. And I think it's, it is indeed, a, 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 as you already kind of noted, a, a fascinating it has a fascinating history of reception and a, a publication and but also as you just pointed out it is the kind of the the place where the two issues connect nationalism and philology storytelling and a self-rule so it kind of really brings us to the issue at stake i think if i understand the point correctly which is a yeah nationalism as a as, as philology, as an attempt to recreate a certain culture and language. So maybe before we can go into details, you can tell us a little bit more about the book, about its, uh, about its history of, of, uh, of publication, and perhaps even about something about its famous adaptations. And then we can discuss in more details how it serves the national, the national project of the Grimm brothers. Yeah. Thank you. There's so much to say about this book, which surely is one of the most known books in uh, literary history and uh, translated, as you say, into numerous languages and loved and cherished and then adapted and retold. And to this day, I'm sure everyone knows there are Hollywood movies based on fairy tales. It's a pretty sturdy genre with a couple of new movies uh, every decade. So it starts as a scholarly project. Uh, they want to gather the tales and they add a lot of information about where they got them and the history of these individual tales. And they publish them in this pretty raw form. They're just transcribed. But uh, friends of theirs and publishers point out that maybe you could drop the footnotes and maybe you could add illustrations and maybe this could be more of a Christmas book for families. And over time, steadily, that is the kind of book it becomes, a less of a scholarly project and more of a book for family and children and for, for, for reading aloud to your child and so on. So where did they collect the stories? I think there's a mixture uh, of sources. I think some of them were uh, written sources, so they found it in libraries, uh, but they did also speak to informants, you could say. Uh, there were there's some stories of them tracking down people and maybe giving them a, a pair of pants or something and hearing a good story. But they also relied quite a lot on uh, family friends of theirs in their neighborhood, in their town, in their social circle. Uh, some of those families were Huguenots, so they were French. They actually told the Brothers Grimm tales they heard and probably from a French tradition. Some of those tales were then later shed in editions, in later editions. And then they have maybe the most famous informant, who Dorothea Fiemann, who was a lady, I think she was an innkeeper's daughter, and uh, she knew a lot of tales and contributed a number. And they commemorated her also with a portrait in one of the editions, I think one of the later editions. Uh, they spoke about her openly and kind of explained how she had a, a terrific memory and could tell all these stories. And so 
I should say they never presented themselves as the creative authors or as the original storytellers, but always as uh, a vehicle of these stories that belonged to other people or to maybe a local population or ultimately the entire German people. Right. So the I think the key term here is vehicle. And this uh, I, I want to use this word to connect with the previous discussion we had about philologist King. How does this, how do these stories become a vehicle for the national, the German national project? Yeah, it's, I think it's an excellent question. And, and it's one I tried to address in one of the chapters of the book. I think that it is difficult to find explicit nationalist content in the tales. I don't think you have a tale where a character breaks into some kind of speech about the virtues of the German nation or something. Red, little Red Riding Hood is not a nationalist, and they don't really try to make her one either. There are a lot of editions, as we said, and they certainly edited out some sexual content and added some uh, appropriate content and edited for style and made it smoother. But they never made the tales explicitly nationalist. So to understand what purpose they serve for a nationalist project, I try to take one step back and I say, let's look at all the different texts and genres that the nationalists used. And I say there's a kind of nationalist repertoire of genres. Of course, there is the militant pamphlet calling people to fight against Napoleon. And of course, there is also the um, strident poem trying to drum up emotional support for the German cause. But there's also the collection of legends, the collection of fairy tales, the collection of songs. And the point here is precisely that they're not political, that they try to establish the presence, the existence of a innocent, historically deep German culture that is not immediately instrumentalized or for political purposes and also not created for nationalist purposes. It has always existed there. It's always been there. That's, in a sense, the fiction they need to say that there is an autonomous German culture, and it's a folk culture, and it's rich, and it's historically has been there for ages. And so I try to say that you have to look at, in this age, the coordination of militant pamphlet and seemingly unpolitical folktale collection. There are genres of mobilization, and then there are genres of folkloric substantialization, you could say. And I think that's where you find the political meaning of this fairytale collection. Not in the tales themselves, but in the constellation of genres that somehow both prove the existence of a German nation and then call people up to fight for that nation. Meaning the political context is, is something that the reader should have assumed or is assumed by the authors or something of the sort. Yeah, I think the political context is clear if you read the authors and maybe you read the paratext, the prefaces and so on. I don't think that the political context is obvious if you pick up a English language copy of the fairy tales today. I think that context has been shed. The prefaces are gone. Uh, the references are gone. And the context, the historical context is gone. But at the time, I think it was clear. I remember uh, when I first start, started studying uh, German literature, uh, there was a big debate about the question to what degree and how 
where the German romantics kind of broadly construed political, right? The assumption of the kind of the older generation was, this is not political, it's about aesthetics and beauty and and, and kind of a, a divine inspiration or something of the sort. And the more younger generation tried to make a case that these were in fact political suggestions within a certain context. So I guess you're going very much in this direction. I think so, but the paradox is in some way that the political value of these folktales to the Brothers Grimm and their friends is in some way precisely in them being not particularly political on the surface, because the function they play is to establish that there is a German culture, and that culture has been there for a long time, and that it belongs to all Germans, and that's a popular culture. And then they can kind of frame that and point to it and say, look, this is proof of the existence of a German culture. And that's what we have to defend. And then the defense is then called for in, in other genres. So in some sense, you could say that it's precisely because the tales are innocent, modest, rustic, popular, that they uh, prove what, they, what the Grimm's want them to prove, namely that the German culture is there. They need that as a kind of pre-political ground for other political claims. This raises in my mind many questions. I am, the first is, uh, if that is so, how could you translate these texts and make them so lovable in other cultures, right? I mean, there is something of a paradox here for, because on the one hand, this is the kind of the German uh, stories, schlechthin. On the other hand, well, here's an American or an Israeli or, I don't know, a other national a, a citizen of another country, another state, another religion who reads these texts and find them wonderfully fascinating. So how do, how do they, how did this, how did this work together? Yeah, that's a fascinating question because, of course, they have been widely translated and they are loved beyond all national borders. And I think the Grimm's in many ways also admit that. They have a wonderful saying. They say something like, legends travel by foot. So they're more regional, more local, whereas fairy tales have wings. They can fly across all borders and Snow White can be appreciated in 19th century Germany, but also in 21st century America uh, and all across the world. And the fact is they're not really nationalistic in themselves, as I've said. In fact, it's a kind of a complicated approach they have to these fairy tales. The claim is not that they are uniquely German and that only Germans have Snow White and Cinderella or Ashpuddle, as they call it. The claim is instead that there are versions of these tales in many different countries, and those versions can be compared with one another and it is the inflections, it's the particular type of story, particular version of the story that is the German thing, so to speak. So they don't deny that there are stories all across Europe that are quite similar. And they, in fact, point out that there are also African folktales, so folktales in other continents. Right. They never deny that. They think that the particular inflections of these tales are what give them their national flavor, you could say. Yes, I think it's fascinating uh, to think about what is kind of uh, assumed when we read these folk tales and what is and what is 
in the text and so much is actually assumed as as you suggest i think the other point that i'm i'm very curious about and i i was curious from the moment i opened the book is is something we might return to a bit a bit in detail later and that is the same question from the other direction what if these story stories come from everywhere and they have some Huguenot, Huguenot um, sources or, 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 or different versions. What is it that makes them for them? What is it that makes German German? But, but let's leave this question just for a little bit, because I think you discuss it later in the book and we can, we can think about it in conclusion. Uh, what you raised was also an issue about the context in which they're working, the other kind of nationalistic tendencies, other nationalistic writings, other figures who were operating in in the same period. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. So where did the Grimm's, Grimm's study, um, in what intellectual environment did they grow up? Who were their teachers? Um, what is it uh, to study the German university uh, at the turn of the 18th century, right? To the early 1800s, right? And um, and who are their teachers? Who, Because you do write quite a lot about uh, this issue. To tell us, who, who taught them? Where did they come from? So they go to um, a gymnasium uh, in Hessen, I think in Kassel. And then they move on to study law in Marburg. That's uh, another town in the region. And uh, as I mentioned, they, they study law. And that's really the discipline that you study at the time if you want to go into administration, government service. And their father, who passed away early, he was a kind of local uh, official in the judiciary regionally. And so I think they had in mind something like that for the, these two brothers. When they come, came to university, their teacher was uh, a man called Friedrich Karl von Savigny, who was a uh, nobleman, an academic, and a brilliant legal scholar. And he introduced uh, or strengthened, you could say, a historical approach to law. So you want to study sources, you want to study the evolution of law, and understand um, why a law code looks like it does. And so he wrote a book on possession versus ownership, and uh, this, uh, the Grimm's are very familiar with his work. So you have a kind of exposure to a historicist approach to, uh, to uh, the structure of society, you could say. And at the same time, they also spend time with people around Savigny, people like Clemens Brentano and Achim von Arnim, romantic, romantic authors. And they were very engaged in a project of collecting folk songs. And they eventually published a book called uh, Des Knaben Wunderhorn, a very famous folk song collection. And uh, they were creative authors, so they edited that a lot. They were not just transcribing songs they heard. They had no scholarly ambitions. They had creative uh, literary ambitions. And so you could see that is the kind of constellation that the Grimm, the young Grimm's are moving in. They're interested in historicist scholarship, and they're also interested in folk songs and folk tales and legends. So I think the collection of folk tales comes out of that. It's a scholarly historicist approach to uh, 
genres of the people, popular genres. Was Herde a part of their teaching, schooling somehow? They are definitely aware of him, um, but he, Herder dies, of course, in Weimar in 1803, which is uh, the year, I think, that uh, the first year of university for Jakob Grimm and the second year, or sorry, the, the first year for Wilhelm Grimm and the second year for uh, Jakob Grimm. So they never met him, and I'm not sure exactly uh, what they read, but they clearly have absorbed his understanding of, uh, of national culture. The the book or the book project in the background here is the Herderian project of collecting folk songs uh, from all over the world and to cherish, more generally cherish, the vitality and dynamism of the of cultural expressions that stem from the people rather than from the greatest minds or the greatest authors. So very broadly, they are, I think, working in a Herderian tradition. I always teach in my introductory class, I teach Herder and the Grimm's in the same kind of lecture because they kind of just complement each other so nicely. I think so. Uh, what I think they, where I think they differ is that Herder truly is a voracious reader who is just incredibly interested and enthusiastic about all sorts of culture and piece them together in a grand tapestry of the evolution of world culture, whereas the Grimm's are just much more focused Germanist scholars. They publish a German grammar, a German dictionary, German myths, German legal antiquities, and then also German legends. And so I think they are broadly Herderian, but there's a little bit of a shrinking vision so that they look mostly at the Germanic culture. So I want to speak to you a little bit about uh, Jakob's Grimm career as a as a uh, administration at the administration, but before that, maybe you can set us up with a few words about uh, the kind of political history of Germany at the period. What is, I mean, obviously we know this is not yet Germany, but where is the national spirit or nationalism at this point? How rife is it? What does what are the kind of imagination of the peoples in regard to the national project? Um, and and where do this do these ideas stand in relation to the existing political and very fractured political system that existed in the in that period in the Holy Roman Empire? Wow, that's uh, an enormous <laughs> question. <laughs> okay, uh, maybe we can maybe you can kind of just bring it to the to the sphere of concern for Jakob Grimm. I mean, what yes. does it for him at this period to be a nationalist, and yeah. how does it fit to his his work at the administration? Yeah, I think it's uh, as you say, Germany as we know it today doesn't exist uh, when the Grimms are born in the 1780s. Uh, they they're born in this electorate, as it was, uh, or you know, a regional principality uh, with, I think, about. Uh, half a million inhabitants, uh, the Hessen Kassen. And then they experience, um, and that's where they see themselves. They, I think they envisage in the, when they're young, a kind of career in that principality. Um, and then they experience the Napoleonic conquest of uh, Germany and also of their own area, their own region. And they notice how, or they experience firsthand how that how their own 
principalities fitted into a new Napoleonic kingdom, a kind of satellite state ruled by Napoleon's brother, as I mentioned, and really a state meant to be a kind of exemplary public display of the great benefits of Napoleonic modern administration in German lands. And they are opposed to that, not, not rebels, but they would prefer something else. And then they of course, see the wars of liberation and they support the German cause. And, uh, and uh, Jakob Grimm even visits or spends time at the Viennese Congress. And, uh, and the, re the consolidation of German principalities into a much smaller number than this patchwork called the Holy Roman Empire. And then eventually they leave for Göttingen uh, in Hanover, a, a larger kingdom. And eventually after that to Berlin and Russia. So their own life trajectory, you could say, goes from uh, one smaller principality to a series of bigger ones, eventually Prussia, which is a dominant power at the time. Uh, and so they see their lives in some ways coincide with a very monumental reorganization of German lands where borders shift and are redrawn and larger units emerge. And at the end of their lives, I think they could see some kind of pan-German state of some kind, although they didn't experience it themselves. So Jakob Grimm died in, uh, before the uh, German unification. Maybe it's worth mentioning also that this is the period that Hegel was operating and thinking about similar questions I, about the state and the spirit and how the spirit evolves into becoming a state. This is 1805, I think, is the phenomenology. This is right at the same time, and all these people are thinking. So tell us tell us more about, about it. Tell us, I, I didn't know this actually, but I read in your book, uh, Jakob Grimm went to work for the administration. What did he do? What were, what, what, what were his thoughts about... A politics, administration, and how does it fit into your kind of a picture of the Grimm brothers as Belanger's kings? I just wanted to mention, you mentioned Hegel, and I think uh, that's obviously one incredibly important vision, ultimately articulated in 18, the early 1820s when the philosophy of right, the, the, the Hegelian, and he, of course, he uh, takes issue with the nationalist. He, he rejects this idea of some kind of spontaneous, intimate, fraternal union of all co-nationals and thinks that that is a, is a you know, romantic notion that isn't very useful and we should instill, we should rather look at the architectonic of a rational state in which all the members can come to identify rationally uh, with the whole, so to speak. So I would just say this period, with all its shifting boundaries and re redrawn borders, is also an incredibly fertile period for political thought. And you have the nationalist vision, and you have the Hegelian vision, and of course you also have other competing visions, romantic visions of communities of love or uh, conservative visions of a return to feudalism or so on. So there's just an incredibly interesting, uh, alive period in political thought. And of course, um, socialism is not very far off from this discussion. It's not very, it's not very far away. Uh, Marx is born in 1818. He's, of course, much younger. But in the 1830s, late and early 1840s, you have the emergence of 
socialist thought. And in, that's something I will study in a future project. Maybe we can get back to that uh, to. later. But to talk about Jakob Grimm's career, one thing I really wanted to show people in this book is just how closely Jakob Grimm worked with various regimes at the time. He was a very famous storyteller at the end of his life, and he certainly is now, but he did not live off royalties on the book market. That's not how he made his money. And he was uh, and he was also not, you know, he was trained in law and he, he had his career and he had different kinds of work. So early on, he was a court librarian working for the regime, also under uh, Bonaparte, in fact. Later on in Hanover, he became a professor and Willem Grimm was a librarian in Hanover. And eventually he had a kind of extraordinary uh, academic position where he was a lexicographer in Prussian Berlin. But at all these times, who ruled over the principality where he happened to be mattered a great deal to him. And he worked quite closely and even met sometimes regularly with whatever king or prince ruled. And so I wanted to show in this book that they are, when we think of the Grimm's, we think of them as storytellers, kind of disseminating folk tales to the German people. But if you look at his professional career, you realize that he worked around rulers basically all his life. And he had an acute sense of who they were. And he was often very disappointed and disgruntled. But they mattered to him. Who they were and what they believed mattered to him. And so in a sense, when I introduce this phrase, the philologist king, it's not it's not conjured out of nothing. This is a person who had an acute sense of who the rulers of the time was, were, and who believed that maybe in some ways they could be nudged or influenced. I should say he never really managed to influence any ruler, but the idea was there, right? Yeah. The idea was there. Well, what are the sources for this for this period or for this kind of work he did? Just if you could just tell us in a few words, because I find it absolutely fascinating. What did he write? Yeah, he, he uh, you know, there were people who worked for the ad, uh, legally trained academics who did various kinds of things like um, published statistics or um, uh, published journals that were friendly to the regime and uh, conveyed messages of the king to the people and so on. There isn't much work of that nature, I think, in his uh, in his oeuvre. And some of the work that he completed, and and his brother too, didn't haven't hasn't left a lot of traces. So Willem Grimm, for instance, for a brief period, was a tutor to a prince, and uh, Jakob Grimm worked as a part-time censor. Uh, you know, just reading through literature and making sure that everything was fine according to the criteria of the of the rulers. So I don't think. It has left a lot of traces, uh, but they comment on their work, uh, on their work as librarians, on their work of trying to recover stolen goods from the Na Napoleonic France after the Wars of Liberation. He makes comments about civil servants and their status and what relationship they have to the ruler. And uh, eventually when they collide and clash with the king. There are, in Hanover, in Göttingen in 1837, there are letters and uh, statements from that period too. In the next chapter, you discuss uh, the German school system. Mm -hmm. I think uh, 
it made me think about school systems. There is nothing, I mean, school systems are incredible tools for standardizing knowledge in a sense, what is considered to be right and wrong. And, and you discuss the correct language, I mean, standardizing language and so forth. I didn't know this about uh, the Grimm's. Uh, they did write about the school system, the schooling. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, but it would be nice to say a few words, if you can, about where the schooling system is at the first half of the 19th century. What are we looking at here? Yes, you're absolutely right. The school is uh, a crucial institution for anyone involved in a nation-building project. So as you say, the school system is where you can standardize language or linguistic instruction, where you can standardize culture, in effect, where you can introduce a canon and make sure that everyone reads the same thing. And so the school is probably uh, maybe the most important instrument for anyone who wants to build a nation. And it was recognized as such by the nationalists of the period. Fichte writes at length about pedagogy and schooling and thinks that a national school system will be the one thing that can forge a nationally unified, compact, and loyal citizenry that will fight for the German nation, essentially. And so for the Grimms, even though they weren't school teachers exactly, they were professors, this is something they absolutely do think about. And over the course of his lifetime, Jakob Grimm could observe how the school system was expanded and how it grew in importance and size. And so early letters to his teacher, Savigny, I mentioned earlier, he's very skeptical of schools. He thinks that the mother tongue should be learned in the home at the mother's breast. That's the most authentic and intimate transmission of a language. And that a schoolmaster teaching language, he will get it wrong. He won't respect the local dialect. He won't really understand grammar the way that Jacob Grimm understands grammar and so on. So he dismisses the school. He thinks the school is maybe useful to learn Latin, but not to instruct anyone in the German language. But over time, in the 1840s, he just comes to understand that this is a massive institution. There are tens of thousands of school teachers in Prussia alone. And this is where you basically construct a national culture. This is the this is the key to having some kind of national unity. And so I describe in the book how he's always kind of pulled between those poles. On the one hand, he cherishes the local culture that is truly spontaneous and grows from intimate settings and is and can be and is sort of natural and organic. And on the other hand, he understands the key value of a school system. It's just that school system make him a little uncomfortable because they promise a kind of top-down dissemination of culture, which is he, which he is adverse to. They are, in a sense, imperial in nature, in that they root out local culture and replace it with a kind of national culture. And so I think the school system and his thoughts on the school system is the perfect place to capture the tension between in the local and the organic and the incremental and evolutionary and natural and the forged and constructed and nonetheless indispensable national culture. But we're inching right into the the issue that I was thinking about since since I 
I opened the book, as I mentioned, and that is the issue of the uh, the standard on the one hand and the local on the other. The idea that to create national culture, you need standardization, you need a canon, you need to be able to say all Germans are alike in one way or another, all Americans are alike, while knowing all the time that this likeness doesn't really exist anywhere. I mean, for scholars, scholars know that this is, you know, famously in an imagined community, people come from different places, they speak different languages, they have different customs, cultures, they eat their schnitzel from a different direction, and so on and so forth. And this is clearly the case in Germany in the 19th century, right? I mean, people in the North and the South, they don't quite understand the same language, kind of, and they even don't have the same religion. And yet the national and they do and break in and so forth and so on. So how do you square the circle? How do or I'll put it I'll put it more in a more in a more concrete way. How do they try to square the circle? How do you understand this project in their work on the schools? Maybe you could talk about about it a little bit in more detail, but also generally how do they figure out or what is their position on this kind of complexity of the nation as one thing? They were clearly nationalist, but the knowledge that as folklorists, they know, of course, that people have different traditions and so forth. So what, 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 how does it work? I think this is an excellent question. In some ways, you formulated the question of the book because the Brothers Grimm are just too knowledgeable and too armed and immersed in local detail to, to think that the nation is the only community you belong to and the only variation on world culture or something like that. If you look at their writings, they are aware of many levels of culture. The local, the small, even neglected, unknown dialect, the national tongue that is standardized and can allow people to write to each other or speak across local borders. And also, ultimately, the unity of the Germanic languages as a whole, Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, who are clearly different languages, but yet have a shared history and have evolved and branched out from some common source. So they are really not, shall we say, obtuse nationalists who believe that the nation is the one natural unit. They are aware of many, many layers. And of course, it is a difficulty for them because they can see that the creation of a nation, partly by means of a school system, for instance, and a national canon, will inevitably do damage and replace local culture. And in his late works, Jakob Grimm even envisages a distant future in which maybe the Germanic languages have fused and small languages like Icelandic would have disappeared into some pan-Germanic language. And so he has an he has an understanding of the evolution of culture and the plasticity of culture. And so you could say, well, why then choose the nation as the level at which you uh, that you can erase a state, you could say, erect a state and then draw borders and insist on its integrity and autonomy and so on. And in the book, I try to explain it um, in terms of them seeing the nation as a kind of enlarged particular. They know that there are other forms of particularity, local, regional, but they are harder to defend, harder to retain, 
in the modern culture of standardization and centralization. And the pan-Germanic future has not arrived yet, although it might in the future. So the nation is in some way the one unit that still retains individuality, that still is available to them as a textured identity, and yet can also be politically defended. I say in the book somewhere that it's the kind of last wall of the particularity. It's not the only form of cultural particularity. It's not the only source of identity, but it's the source of identity and a kind of community that can be defended politically. Remember that Jakob Grimm and Wilhelm Grimm uh, experienced themselves how Napoleon rolled over all those small principalities in Germany and understood that they couldn't be defended. I think it's wonderful. So we start uh, our discussion by imagining these two staunch nationalists who imagined a Germany where Germany didn't exist. And we kind of inch towards the end of the discussion by having a, an idea of a nation that is really a utility for kind of an uneasy utility for a local cultures that can somehow retain um, individuality or something of the sort. Would you agree? Is that is that your impression working on the topic? I, yeah, I think so too, because at the end of the book, I quote uh, the famous sociologist Gellner, who says, when the nationalists are ridiculous, they preach organic community and smallness and authenticity, but in fact, they are the proponents or the agents of centralization, standardization, and so on and so forth. And I say that this particular objection to nationalism doesn't quite work in the case of the Grimms because they see their task. They are very aware of these tensions and these paradoxes. And they see their task in some sense as in managing this transition. Let's retain as much as we can in this new future of greater centralization and standardization. We can't hold on to every single local dialect, every single local story, but we can save what we can and make it available and create a kind of viable, semi-authentic individual, indiv individual culture that, that, that lets itself be defended, so to speak. Yeah, so it's a little more, the nation is a little more of a compromise formation than an absolutely unquestioned unit for them, I think. Do you think it's something that they realized through their biography, or was it something that they knew from the get-go? Is, is it an evolution of thought, or they were immediately uh, aware of this problem? I think there, I think the, in some ways, both. Uh, I think there is a growing awareness of how modern culture works. Uh, and that is captured in uh, Jakob Grimm's late 1840 reflections on the school system as just this massive, gigantic system that will standardize culture, and you have to live with it. You can't, you can't dismantle it. So there is a growing understanding, but even in the folktale collection that we started uh, with from the early on in their careers, there is a sense that they are rescuing something and making it available on a grander scale by means of print, by means of a book, uh, rescuing the shards and surviving fragments of a more locally rooted culture that will disappear unless they do something. And they understand that that intervention 
might even hasten the end of that local culture insofar as they are replacing it. So in some sense, it is a program that they develop over time, but I think it's already embedded in the folktale collection. We are saving this oral storytelling tradition in the means of a book. We are taking the stories from female storytellers, we young male scholars, and putting it in an anthology, making this culture available to all who read German, and in some ways saving what was once local, but at the same time erasing what was once local. Maybe that is... Uh, to summarize uh, the legacy that the brothers Grimm leave uh, for us living in this kind of multicultural nations in a sense. Would you agree? I think so. Uh, when I started with this book, I, I expected to find aggressive nationalists who had some clear agenda. And when I looked at the Grimm's, I felt that they are trying to manage the transition to a new world, to a modern world of print, of print communication, of massive schooling. And it's a much more complex rescue operation where that which is being rescued has to be modified and adapted. And in that sense, I think, I I think that their, their nationalism is internally more complex and more riddled with tensions and paradoxes that they, I think, at least partly understood. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the discussion, for the book. I, I think uh, what you said resonates very well, and uh, I really enjoyed the book. Maybe before we wrap up, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the project you're working on now, and where does this where does this uh, uh, Grimm Brothers lead, left you, and where you're taking it onward. Well, if I may, I want to mention two projects, so one of which is already finished and I'm hoping to see it come out uh, maybe this year or the early next year, and then one future project, because they're both connected to this work on the Brothers Grimm. The first is a book on Arthur Schopenhauer, the pessimist philosopher. He was uh, a generational peer of the Brothers Grimm, also born in the 1780s, and in some ways uh, a witness to the same transformation but he was a radical cosmopolitan. He thought nationhood was ridiculous. And so I it's a book about Schopenhauer's politics. It's called Schopenhauer's Politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about statehood and republicanism and uh, monarchy and China and America and everything he had to say about politics. But it's also about his repudiation of nationalism because he thought it was absolutely ridiculous to think of nations as some kind of important moral communities. He felt he had nothing in common intellectually with most Germans. And he also felt that he didn't really owe only Germans compassionate, ethical attention. All humans who suffer, and all humans suffer, deserve your compassion, not just your co-nationals. That was for him. So nationalism was for him an impossibly narrow moral vision and also a ludicrous uh, intellectual vision because... I have nothing in common intellectually, he thought, with my neighbor. So that's in some ways looking at another generational figure who repudiates the rising nationalism of the time. So that book is already done, and I hope it will come out soon with the same publisher. But then I'm also looking at Bettina von Arnim right now, and that's my future project. And Bettina von Arnim was a friend of the Brothers Grimm, and she took the ethnographic methods 
that they partly developed uh, with uh, in this romantic circle, but she turned it towards the impoverished urban proletariat. And so with her, you can see a beginning in nationalism, but a turn towards what was called the social question. And I think I'll call the book Social Justice Romanticism. And I think all these projects together show you how this period, again, is just incredibly fertile ideologically and politically. And that people who even know each other, who are close friends through the decades, go in radically different directions politically, uh, sometimes with the same methods. Wonderful. Okay, I'm very much looking forward for that book. So maybe we can speak again when the Schopenhauer book is out. Um, thank you very much. We were discussing the Brothers Grimm and the making of the German nationalism with Jakob Nornberg. Thank you so much. Well, thank you.